Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, is back on the program to provide his thoughts and insights on the markets, as well as breaking down key macro themes. Host Pamela Ritchie asks Urian, with inflation cooling, have the markets made it through the fire and are they on an uptrend? To answer that, Urian speaks about the technical side of things in the markets. Through his charts, he explains how the S&P performed pretty decisively last week, breaking through the current downtrend line that suggests the markets may be flattening out. But Urian says even if that's the case, it doesn't necessarily mean an uptrend is in place. Urian suggests the markets may experience more of a sideways movement going forward. A choppy sideways trend, he believes, will bugger up both bears and bulls in the market. Urian also talks about earnings and how his analysis shows the progression in the next couple quarters will be negative. So the question is, how much is that priced in to the markets? He points out the markets are always a step ahead of earnings, but that doesn't mean the markets are always right. Urian also comments on the Fed and quantitative tightening, the debt ceiling and emerging markets. Stay tuned for this and more. Also, per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. Today's podcast was recorded on January 30th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So so wade into this for us now. Our markets, markets are wondering if perhaps we've made it through the fire. It's been quite a year, but is that it? Are we on to an uptrend, for instance? What can you tell us? Well, uh, that, that is one of the big questions for 2023, but let's pull up slide one. The slide Urian is referring to is titled Technicals, tweeted on January 30th. The S&P, it's down today, but last week it did, you know, pretty decisively cross through that, you know, very widely known downtrend line, which you see there in the chart, which also coincide with where the 200-day moving average is, which is another common guide to see where the trend is. And a lot has been made of that, um, that the, the downtrend has now been broken, and technically you could make that argument. Uh, but... I just want to remind everyone that just because a downtrend line has been broken doesn't mean that a new uptrend is necessarily in place. It could be in place, but if the market goes from a down channel to a sideways range, which has been my uh, expectation for this year, then by definition, the downtrend line has to break at some point as well. So it really doesn't tell us anything about whether the next bull market is underway. It just tells us that the, the downtrend has flattened out, which is what I, I've been expecting. You know, last year was the, the valuation derating, right? The PE was down 31%. And my sense is that this year will be a choppy sideways affair that's going to frustrate both bulls and bears alike. And right now, obviously, the bears are being frustrated because we have some technical strength. And a lot of that is coming from what we call systematic players like risk parity, 
CTAs, uh, kind of you know, uh, uh, programmed buying, if you will. Um, but we do have potentially more Fed hawkishness on the way. And of course, we have an earnings cycle, which is, you know, we have earnings season right now, um, and it's about to get really big, you know, this week. So there are still a lot of variables at play that I think will keep the market going kind of sideways from here. It's it's really fascinating. Let's so we'll come back to earnings in just a second. But if we can go a little bit to the idea of how we're seeing inflation be sticky in some places. There's a lot of sort of uh, points to Spain, also Australia last week, where inflation came back. I mean, it's still um, something that it seems we're getting through. It, it, what is sort of your sense on on that risk of it sticking around? Yes. Um, and, you know, it kind of brings me back to the analog that we've been using for the last three years, which is that World War II analog. And we we'll just pull up slide four here. And that slide is called 1946 to 1948 analog tweeted by Urian on January 30th. And again, you know, many things are totally different, right? We're demographically, we're different. We're much less of a goods producing economy these days. And of course, you know, we didn't have World War II, we had a, the pandemic, but there are similarities in terms of, you know, that fiscal monetary one-two punch that really, um, you know, uh, caused the market to, uh, to reverse higher. Um, and then the inflation overhang, which caused the bear market and the valuation reset. So this is 1946 to 49 on the right-hand side of the screen. And you can see that the market back then fell 27% um, as inflation went from basically 2% to 20%, right? If you think 9% was high, imagine 20%. Um, and then the market basically bottomed when inflation peaked. Um, and um, and But the market still kind of had to sit around and range trade for a while because you can see, even though inflation had peaked back then at 19.6%, it, it kind of took a while for it to really go away. Like it hung out there at nine, 10% for a while. And again, I don't know what's going to happen to the inflation outlook this year. My sense is that inflation is clearly coming down and will continue to do so. But we don't know how sticky things will get once we get down to the three to 4% area, um, knowing that the Fed's target, of course, is 2%. So I'm just showing this to highlight that the similarities do continue, and um, and even though the backdrop in many ways is different, and you know the analog continues to track, and would suggest that we're kind of seeing as much of the gains uh, as we're going to see right now. Okay, really interesting. Um, let's go back to earnings. It's a big week on that front, as we mentioned in the introduction. You, you pointed to as well. I mean, I guess the question is always to what extent have markets sort of priced in the earnings difficulty? Have have prices bottomed before earnings? That sort of situation. Earnings estimates are actually coming down, um, and and that I think you know is 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 understandable given how much the Fed has hiked, um, and um, and we are in fourth quarter earnings season right now. Um, 143 companies have reported. They, the, the beat is around 70% have beaten estimates by about two percentage points. So that that is a, still a, a reasonably okay um, season. And you can see that the growth rate, you know, that it's, it's like waves rolling ashore and uh, the waves are coming in negative. So right now we're at minus 3% growth for the, for the fourth quarter, but the first and second quarter are coming in negative, and usually those lines continue to fall as, as you can see that progression kind of goes down 
And so it's very, very likely that the earnings growth for 2023 is going to be negative. And you can see that the growth estimate for 2023 is currently at about zero. And so it's very, very likely as that line continues to fall, which is what it typically does, that 23 will be a negative year. But you ask the question, you know, how much of this um, is already in the market? I mean, the market knows all of this, right? So you, the market's always pricing in things. And you can see uh, that oftentimes when earnings are falling, uh, the valuation is already starting to rise. And that's because the market cycle, you know, price anticipates the, the change in earnings. So the market's always a step ahead of what's happening to earnings. But the market's not always correct. The market is very efficient, brutally efficient at pricing in what is known. But that doesn't mean that the market is always right about what it thinks it knows. And so incoming information could change that. So the question is, is this all known and is therefore the market already ready to look past it? And the market currently, clearly, that's what the market currently is doing. The market is pricing itself or soft landing. But I, I, I'm worried that the market is a little bit ahead of itself. And you can see uh, that the ISM index or the PMI, the Purchasing Managers Index, um, you know, has peaked for the cycle. It's actually in contraction mode. So the goods producing side of the economy in the U.S. actually is already in a you know, modest um, contraction. And when you overlay what's happened to the PMI during periods when the yield curve was inverted, which of course it is right now. So to me, it suggests that earnings will continue to come in negative and that estimates will continue to get downgraded, possibly all the way into early 2024. And that's where the timing comes in because the low so far is October of last year. And so if the bottom in earnings happens in 2024 sometime, that, that the market would be like a year and a half early in bottoming. And that generally doesn't happen. And also, when the market bottoms ahead of earnings, uh, it tends to happen at a big tail event. So like you think about the financial crisis, COVID, those were big left tails in earnings. So very sharp declines in earnings. And we're not we're not seeing that yet. So to me, the narrative of, yeah, the market knows all this. So that's that's why we're looking ahead. I think historically, that's true. But I think in the current case, um, it's a little premature to make that conclusion. Fascinating. As you're saying this, there are several, maybe different versions, but real concern about um, wage settlements. We've seen um, job cuts and so on. Um, this question is wage settlements have not been felt yet. Any thoughts on what happens if that happens and somewhat related to the consumer? Um, if too many people lose jobs, does that affect consumer demand? Will this be an indication that uh, central banks have tightened too much? It's a great question. Um, and of course, this is what makes the Fed's job so difficult because they are they have a dual mandate, uh, full employment, price stability. Both of them are lagging indicators. So they are they are setting uh, forward looking policy on the basis of lagging indicators. Uh, this is why you have policy errors during these phases of the cycle historically, because the Fed has very blunt instruments. It has rates and, and balance sheet. Um, and it just, you know, and we don't know when it's too late until it's too late, right? And so the Fed, of course, is trying to thread a needle. It doesn't want a recession. I think it's willing to accept one. 
as um, as a way to uh, to uh, rein in structural inflation threats, and obviously, as you mentioned, you know, wage settlements. That's how the 1960s into the 70s became a structural inflation problem because you had these cost of living adjustments, collective bargaining with unions, all that stuff. Um, and I think the Fed is trying to prevent that wage price spiral from happening. Uh, but it's a very difficult challenge, right? We know that the labor market remains super tight. There are two job openings per every for every job seeker, um, and uh, and I think the Fed would like to kind of take the steam out of that without potentially actually having people lose their jobs. And and it's a very difficult needle to thread. The Fed does not have a good track record at threading needles, and that's why uh, the recession conclusion or expectation. Um, is a very reasonable one because the Fed is pushing policy so far above neutral and is telling us that it's going to stay there as well, despite the Fed, despite the market's expectation that the Fed will pivot, that maybe a recession is something we'll have to contend with later on this year. Right. So let me just sort of set this up because we've spoken about this uh, some time ago now, but it's just the idea of of liquidity, which we've spoken about more recently, but the idea that QT, quantitative tightening, which has been going on, as we know, for for many, many months now, along with the interest rate uh, rises, bring that into the dynamic for us. So pause, yep, that's one way. Could they also just pull back on QT? Is that is that something that's also in the mix for the overall story here? QT, um, quantitative tightening is, of course, um, a big uh, one of the big weapons that the Fed has, right? Raising rates, of course, is one, and the Fed will likely raise rates by at least a quarter point this this week. Some people even think it might be a half, but the, the sense is that the Fed's going to go towards five percent and stay there for a while, and that at least we don't have to worry about the Fed moving goalposts yet again. Remember last year, we we kept thinking, okay, the Fed's going to go to three and a half, or but then they moved it to four, and then they moved it to four and a half. So. I think at least the goalposts are going to stay where they are now that inflation actually is coming down. Uh, but the liquidity part is kind of a, a, a tricky aspect of this. So the Fed is doing quantitative tightening to the tune of $95 billion per month. Um, and I think that's a powerful driver of reducing liquidity, which is what the Fed's trying to do. It's trying to uh, tighten financial conditions, raise the cost of capital. So I don't think the end, an end to QT is likely anytime soon. But at some point, you know, I think the Fed will stop raising rates um, and maybe uh, slow down QT. But I, I think that 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 is still you know pretty far away. But it's interesting that. Other liquidity um, changes are kind of muddying the water for what the Fed's trying to do. And so offsetting the, the, the draining effects of what the Fed is doing are reverse repos, which are basically money market funds giving, giving treasuries to the Fed uh, or having excess liquidity and giving it to the Fed. And also what we call the TGA, the Treasury General Account. It's a little bit inside baseball, but this is the, uh, the Treasury's cash balance at the Fed. And why does the Treasury have a cash balance at the Fed? Because the Fed has a large balance sheet that generates income, right? As the Fed gets coupon payments on its balance sheet, that money belongs to the Treasury. And so what's happening is that the TGA has grown to about $600 billion, and reverse repos have been a big thing. Overall liquidity line has stopped going down. It was going down all year last year, but then in October, 
it started flattening out. And guess what? The market bottomed in October. So maybe not a coincidence that these things are happening. But here comes the, here comes the, the, the odd twist. But this is where we get into these weird debt dynamics of the debt ceiling showdown, right? As we all know, uh, Uncle Sam has run out his, his credit limit, his credit card. And so we're, we're likely to have some kind of political showdown in the coming six months or so. And so the irony here is that as we get into the debt ceiling dynamics, um, and, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden are meeting on trying to get a deal, but, you know, with the current um, uh, Freedom Caucus, you know, constituency in the House of Representatives, maybe a deal is not going to happen very soon. So that forces the Treasury to go into um, extreme measures, I think it's called, uh, in order to kind of keep, you know, the bills paid. And one way to do that is to draw down the TGA. So there's almost 600 billion there. And if the Treasury draws that down to zero, that is that can be seen as 600 billion of stimulus. And so that is six months worth of QT right there. So the irony is that a dragged out debt ceiling debacle actually could be bullish for risk assets because it would inject liquidity. And if the debt ceiling was fixed tomorrow, it would be a negative because that means the Treasury wouldn't have to spend that cash down. So it's it's a totally kind of nonlinear, confusing way of thinking about it. That is completely fascinating. And as you say, it's a sort of a classic irony. Um, a couple of questions coming in here that I'd like to put to you, Yurian. Um, so this question of how much money is waiting on the sidelines at this point, I guess that, that points to probably some allocation questions, but flows and, and just, you know, what's still sitting there? Well, how do you gauge that and what are you looking at? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I don't have the chart this week, but I think I had it last week that shows that there's $4.8 trillion sitting in money market funds in the U.S. And a lot of people are are making the claim that, you know, that's that mountain of cash waiting to be uh, put into the market. And 4.8 is exactly what was sitting on the sidelines back in March of 2020. So, you know, money market fund assets went down and now they're back up again. Uh, I think there's less than meets the eye there um, for the simple reason that the market itself is much higher now. So the market capitalization is now much higher. So that 4.8 trillion, while that's a lot of money, as a percentage of market cap, it's around 11%. Um, and that's about the average over the past, you know, so many decades. So at, at the when when the market was at its peak uh, exactly a year ago, uh, the stock market, um, that ratio of money market fund assets to the stock market was down to six percent. Um, and at the bottom in March of 2020, uh, that ratio was at 17 percent. So um, it doesn't mean that there isn't a mountain of cash, but the, but the signal once you kind of normalize that for the, the market cap uh, in the stock market, I don't think there really is much of a signal there. And also, I think money market funds are taking in money, not because the stock market is so scary, which is typically why they go in, but just because the yields are so good, right? Think about it this way. Uh, six months ago, investors would buy, be buying T-bills or CDs or what have you. Because money market funds are always behind the curve when rates rise because they have to wait for stuff to mature before they can reinvest it. So there's always a lag. But now they've caught up. And now so money market funds are considered a good place to, to park some cash. And I think that's why they're getting the money in, not because people are fleeing the stock market. 
Okay, fascinating. And, and you know, just moving on from that. So do you think that the bond market is is mispriced at this point? How do you, I mean, as you say, they're very high yields at this point. Um, I think the bond market is correctly priced. So the 10-year yield peaked at 4.3% in October. We're down to 35 But inflation expectations have come down, and therefore the real rate uh, is still pretty generous at, at a percent to a percent and a half. And so, you know, one of, I think one of the, the silver linings to an otherwise terrible 2022 where there was no place to hide was that value has returned basically to all the markets, right? I mean, the stock market may be a, a couple of PE points rich right now because it's pricing in a soft landing that probably isn't going to happen. But still, markets at 18 times, maybe it belongs at 17 or 16 times, but not a huge difference. Same thing on the bond market, right? Um, we went from minus 2% real yields to plus 2. We're down to now down to 1.5. Uh, the bond market has value, and I think, um, and I think, you know, we don't know if the 40 will be positively or negatively correlated to the 60. I mean, last year, of course, it was positively correlated, but I think there's value there. And even if that 40 does not negatively correlate uh, in 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 a recession, I think it would. But if even if it doesn't, at least you're getting some income out of it in in nominal and in real terms. That was something you could not have said. A year or two ago, so I think the bond market, I think, has a lot of value, um, and um, and I think it, it's a, it's a good anchor for a diversified portfolio. Fascinating. Um, so many things you've said uh, that are fascinating. Just just want to get before we go your thoughts on. So there are other central banks that are obviously making um, their rate decision announcements this week as well. You have the Bank of England. You've got the the ECB. Inflation is a different story around the world. You mentioned this last week that it really is a relative story um, around the world. You know, just a couple of comments on that, and and also the dollar ultimately. Basically, this is a global story, and I think the story last year was central banks kept moving the goalposts. You know, we thought that four percent was going to be the end, and we could all sort of reprice our all of our assets and and go on with our day. Um, and then that goalpost was moved, you know, to five percent. So I think we're we're we can be somewhat comfortable here that given that inflation has rolled over. I mean, it was nine percent in June of last year. That the PCE was just released and it's down, you know, to a four handle. So that of course is good news. Um, so I think we can stop worrying that the goalposts will be continuing to get moved towards five and a half or six or seven, as some people are saying. So I don't think that's the risk. But that black line, that curvy line there, um, I think that's where the market still has to kind of adjust. So the market is expecting the Fed to go to 5%, you know, this week or in, in the next couple of months, and then pivot very substantially to less than 3% in 2024. And again, 3%-ish is what I would consider a neutral policy. So the Fed is expected to go from very restrictive to neutral in the span of a year. Um, and why would it do that um, other than if there is real economic weakness, and which there may very well be. But if that happens, then the earnings you know, pillar is not likely going to hold. So I think the market is kind of wanting to have its cake and eat it too. It wants the Fed to, to pivot while earnings hold up. And I think you can have one but or the other, but you can't have both. And I think that's where we are. So for the other central banks, 
I think it's a similar story that policy around the world is now restrictive enough that we have to start thinking about how quickly rates will come back down or or not quickly, right? The Fed may very well say, we're going to stay up here for a while until inflation gets back all the way to 2%. And that is something that the market is not priced for. It's not priced in. The, the question that's just rolled in sort of as the, the add-on to the dollar question is the EM question. And if this is now, I, I mean, how do you, if the market has mispriced this, what ultimately does the dollar do in reaction? Well, so the dollar has weakened you know, significantly, which of course is very bullish. That's very bullish, of course, for commodities, for gold, which has been on fire. And it's good for emerging markets. And part of this is the view that the Fed is nearing the end of its tightening cycle and that if it is going to pivot, which the forward curve is suggesting it will, then that would that would uh, mean a, a weaker dollar. But we have this other dynamic as well, which is that China is now finally reopening. I mean, remember, we've been we've been open here in the, in the in the developed world for the last couple of years while China has remained kind of in a zero COVID lockdown. Um, and so China is now opening in earnest, and we're now getting out of the, the Lunar New Year holiday period. And from what I understand, uh, by March, there will be no restrictions on the Chinese economy at all. And so we have a de- desynchronized global economy right now, which is which is actually very good because the rest of the world, the U.S. and Europe are you know, either well, they're not in a recession yet, but we seem to be heading there, while China and therefore the rest of emerging markets are coming out of a self-imposed lockdown, just like we did a couple of years ago. So that creates a cross current and a tailwind to what otherwise might be a more negative story on earnings. So maybe this actually is what keeps earnings you know, from contracting more, even if the U.S., does go into a recession. So, and we know that how well EM have, has done in recent um, in recent months. And this chart here, you know, the purple line shows the what we call the credit impulse in China. So, changes in credit as a percentage of GDP follows a very uh, a very clear two year cycle. And the orange line is the relative earnings growth of EM versus the U.S. tends to follow that two quarters later. So. To me, it suggests that we're going to have a much better earning story for EM relative to the U.S. or developed markets, and relative performance should follow that. So I think it's a good story, and of course, a weaker dollar certainly helps with that. Fantastic. It's so wonderful to have you share all of these amazing new charts with us and put them into context. Thank you very much for for all of your contacts today, Yuri and Tipper. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.